What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. As a librarian, I have a strong affinity to collecting. One reason I feel this way is because I see in artifacts a strong connection to our history and heritage. One of the roles that librarians play is to preserve this past and to provide access to it for those who want to learn from it. One of my favorite categories of artifacts that librarians collect are primary source documents. Especially when we study history, but even when we study things like science and art, primary source documents are a wonderful way to study the world and gain insights. In my work, I spend lots of time showing my students how to find primary source documents. When I first started in the profession, this was a very challenging endeavor, since the majority of primary source documents were only available on location in libraries and museums. You had to do a lot of traveling to get to them. Today, however, we live in times when the internet has made these kinds of documents so much more accessible. Massive amounts of primary source documents are available at the click of a button. While there are many great locations, including websites for libraries and museums, where you can find primary source documents, one of my personal favorites is the Digital Public Library of America. The purpose of this online library is to bring together in one place as many digitized resources as possible. The wealth of resources in this library is amazing. Images, photographs, books, pamphlets, sound files, and video files all come together to really tell us about our society's cultural heritage in a very unique way. I love that they have designed it so you can explore by place or by date, or even look at one of the many curated exhibits the site offers. One of my favorite exhibits, as you might guess, is the one that looks at the history of U.S. public libraries. Here you can see great photographs of how librarians have brought books to people over the years with lots of great pictures of early bookmobiles. You can look at all these scanned pictures to get a sense of the times, and you can also zoom in and out to get a really close look. So if you are looking for some amazing primary source documents, then we here at Rachel's World suggest that you check out the Digital Public Library of America. Truth can be stranger than fiction and often more fascinating. Many a young adult novel begins with a compelling story from history, something that really happened. Our first guest, young adult book author Jennifer Nielsen, became interested in the Berlin Wall and the many personal stories defined and shaped by it. She soon discovered that there were no children's books about the Berlin Wall in English. This moved her to write her own book called A Night Divided that focuses on a family separated by the wall. Jennifer Nielsen is a New York Times bestselling author. Her books include The Ascendance Trilogy, beginning with The False Prince, as well as The Mark of the Thief series and A Night Divided. Here's Rachel and Jennifer Nielsen. We're in studio with Jennifer today. Welcome, Jennifer. Oh, thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to talk about one of your newest books, A Night Divided. It's a wonderful historical novel, and I think that our listeners will just be very interested to, to hear a little bit about it. So let's start out. Give us kind of a summary of what, what is A Night Divided. Uh, the story focuses on Gerda Lowe, 
who um, in basic, her uh, family is divided the night that the Berlin Wall goes up in Berlin, Germany. Um, the weekend that it goes up, half of her family had gone over to the West to look for a way for the family to get out of the East. And now if they try to come home again, uh, they're going to be arrested. And Gerda and a brother and her mother remain stuck now behind the wall in the East. And if they try to leave, they're going to be shot. So A Night Divided is the story of what this girl will attempt to do in order to bring her family back together again. I think that's an important piece of history that maybe not as familiar, especially to children today. I think that's kind of gone away in our popular consciousness. So why did you pick that? Why did you pick the Berlin Wall as something that that you wanted to write about? I had just finished writing a book series called Infinity Ring for Scholastic, which was a multi-platform book with several different authors. My book focused on World War II Germany. And as soon as I finished the book and handed it in, the editor said to me, okay, that's good. You can go on back to your other projects. And I wasn't ready to go on. I loved Germany. And I'm a history minor in school. And I realized how little I knew about what happened to Germany following the war. So just for personal fascination, I started studying it, which brought me to the Berlin Wall. And then I started to realize, as a history minor, I knew almost nothing about how that wall went up. And that was kind of embarrassing for me, because I do love that, you know, all of these history time periods, and I knew so little. And so I thought, you know what, I want to go out searching for a great book about the Berlin Wall, like a middle grade fiction book that I could just really get into. And in all my searching, I did not find one book, not one. And that horrified me that we have never told our children. Uh, Berlin, Germany in the 1960s, that was ground zero for the Cold War. And so, so much of 20th century history takes place right in Berlin with the split of Berlin. And I thought, we have never really told our children about this. And for all the adults who say, well, I remember the wall who came down, there are relatively few who know about the wall going up. I didn't. And so as soon as I kind of saw all these things come together, I knew I was going to have to write this book. So where did the characters or the situation, the problem come from? I mean, there's probably lots of stories you could have told related to that. So why did you pick this story to tell? Well, it started with, um, you know, when I knew I wanted to write Berlin Wall, I remembered that we had had a family friend when I was a child who I knew she had some connection to Berlin. I didn't know what it was. And I called my mom and I says, can you just tell me her story? And she gave me this woman's number. This girl was five years old when her family was living in uh, East, not in Berlin, but they were living in East Germany. And her family owned a grocery store. And at the end of the war, they had been doing fairly well. They weren't wealthy, but they had enough. Communism started to take over. And uh, her family very quickly fell to the point where each member of the family got one meal a day. And the meal was a mayonnaise sandwich. And her family decided we have to get out. This is pre-wall, but it's when the border security was rising. And so mom and dad were going to leave in the countryside because the countryside, it wasn't as well guarded. And they thought we have a better chance of getting out. But uh, this friend of our family was five. And they thought we don't want to bring a five-year-old girl into the countryside. So the plan for her was grandma and grandpa would come in from the west on train. They were going to bring her back 
by train, but they couldn't put her in the passenger seat. She had no papers. And so at five years old, this girl was drugged and put in the baggage car of the train hidden beneath a pile of hay where her grandparents knew full well that when it hit the border, that train car would be searched. And if this girl so much as rolled over in her sleep, she would either be shot or arrested. Her grandparents would be shot or arrested. Uh, This is the way this girl got out of the East and into the West and ended up coming here to America. When I heard that story, I thought, ah, I can't tell that story. It's hers. Also, the main character would be asleep the whole story, which is really boring. So I thought, I'm going to tell the story of the escape, but of characters of my own creation. And so what I did is I took a map of East Germany, and I spread it out on my table, and I drew the Berlin Wall onto the map. And then I sat there for the longest time, and I thought, no, really, how would you escape? And my answer to those questions led to the creation of the story. I love that sense of telling a story that really brings this to life. And that instinct of yours to find a novel, to find a kind of a fictionalized account that told this story to help you understand it, I think is a very important thing to say about historical fiction, that novels play and historical fiction, fictionalized accounts play a really strong role in how we interact with history. So how do you think that happens? Why were you wanting to write a novel, a fictionalized account, why were you drawn to that? I think the power that a novel has versus a nonfiction book is the emotional uh, connection that the reader forms with the character. And uh, what we hope to see with young readers is anytime they have that absorbing book that they love, the, the reader will put themselves in the shoes of the main character. All right? So if you have a young reader who loves Percy Jackson, he's not the reader reading about Percy Jackson. He is. Percy Jackson going on that adventure. So I knew if I could have this reader um, come to associate with Gerda Lowe, she would become Gerda. And now she's in the situation. That emotional experience the reader will go through is a lifetime memory because in their own way, that reader has lived the story. And if you can get a young person to live a piece of history, you get a young person who loves that time of history. And I think that that sense of emotionality to it is so important because when we think about history, often we think of dates and places and the dry, you know, things that textbooks bring to us. But it really was context and emotion and real people living out real lives with real emotions. And just adding that back in through a fictional account just brings such life to this sense. Well, I think we have to remind readers of that, you know, and even us as adults, you know, we have to remind them these decisions, these events of history affected real actual lives. And, you know, the Berlin Wall really did separate many, many families from each other. And and so it had a very significant impact on actual people. And I love that sense, too, because you you wind the story around a very personal situation that a lot of kids can relate to. Being divided from your family would be so scary. But then there's this lovely adventure and, you know, there's tension and all kinds of crazy things that go on and you just – 
several chapters, I'm like, no, they're not going to make it. And things are going to be so awful. It's very <laughs> tense. It is very tense in parts. But you know, when it really drove home to me, the power of this book, I was at a school and a bulletin board had been created for the book. And they took, they gave each child individually a chalkboard. And on that chalkboard, they were to write the name of the person it would be hardest for them to be separated from in a wall. And then it just took these black and white photos and they lined the chalkboard. And so you can look at the face of this child holding this chalkboard saying, my mom, my dog, you know, my brother. And all of a sudden, I realize this book is getting children to understand what it would do to them to not be able to reunite their family and and how hard that would be. And facing that situation, that stark reality with a fictional character actually makes it a little safer, right? So that you can express these emotions and understand how difficult it would be without actually having to experience it yourself. Well, what's so nice is as as a night divided resolves itself, if you've got this child who's been kind of going on this emotional journey in the end, Um, When the situation resolves, it can kind of resolve for the child and they can kind of have that sort of catharsis to say, okay, everything is okay, meaning for me, everything is okay. And everything can kind of come full circle and they're back to rest again. It may not be perfection that we get in the end, but we are always able to to make it through and to be strong in what we're doing. Well, thank you so much, Jennifer, for sharing your great love of history with us both today in the studio and also in your great book, A Night Divided. It was an honor to be here. Thank Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Young adult book author Jennifer Nielsen talking about her historical novel, A Night Divided, about the Berlin Wall and a family separated by it. Next, Rachel talks to Dr. Eula Monroe, a longtime professor of mathematics education at BYU, who has endeavored in her teaching career to help kids and adults get over the fear of math. In fact, she's written Mathematics Dictionary, the easy, simple, fun guide to help math phobics become math lovers. It's part of her goal of making math more approachable. Dr. Monroe has received lifetime awards for contributions to mathematics education in both Kentucky and Utah. Here's Rachel and Eula Monroe. We're welcoming in studio today Dr. Eula Monroe, who is a professor of teacher education in mathematics here at Brigham Young University. And one of the exciting things you've done in your career is to help approach mathematics in a very wonderful way and help kids and parents and teachers kind of demystify some of the aspects of math. And one of those things that you've done to help us do that is your Math Dictionary, a wonderful publication that you have produced that really helps us um, get math phobics to math lovers is in, in the title. So I love that approach. So tell us a little bit about this book and how it came about. Well, first of all, well, I have to think way back a long way. I've always loved words. I always have loved words since a little girl. And I've loved mathematics ever since I can remember as well. And when I started teaching mathematics, I always wanted it to be meaningful. And I remember one day in sixth grade with my sixth graders, we were talking about reciprocal. Well, the students and I looked in the glossary looking for what reciprocal meant. And we found a lovely definition, multiplicative inverse. 
Well, makes it more complicated. Do we have to look up multiplicative and inverse? And then you might find reciprocal. I'm not sure. <laughs> but uh, but anyway, uh, that was many, many years ago. And I do indeed love the language of mathematics. And I love thinking about the words. And I think words carry a lot of the conceptual meaning of mathematics. Words in sentences and in uh, and symbols and all these sorts of things. I'm just intrigued by them. But then over the years, I decided, well, I couldn't find a dictionary for children of math, a dictionary of mathematics for children that defined words and what I thought were mathematically were with mathematical integrity, integrity to the mathematics that's there, but yet were simple enough for children to read and to get the meaning from. I love that sense of this in two ways. This first, that you're just trying to make it accessible and demystify kind of the language of mathematics in a very fundamental way. And I think that that makes mathematics more approachable. But also this sense of that your process shows that there's improvements, you know, things are still growing and changing. And I think that that's an important thing for our listeners to understand that things aren't always set in stone. They improve and they move and and helping our children understand that is great. And then also just you sharing your passion with us. I think this is lovely, Yulia. I think that the the passion you have for this is so wonderful. So maybe tell us a little bit about how did you develop this passion for mathematics that became this beautiful dictionary as as you grew up and became part of this profession? Well, I could tell you about how I started to school at four and <laughs> at a one-room country school, and I had a marvelous first-grade teacher. Now I was almost five, and uh, I cannot really remember a lot about what she taught me, but I knew I loved school, and I, I just knew I loved school, and I always did, but I was the kind of kid who always wanted to know why, and I wanted to understand, and because I always wanted to understand, I made a commitment when I I graduated with my teaching degree in 1960 at the age of barely 20, not dry behind the ears, and not old enough really to take a teach, uh, take your teaching position, but that I did. Uh, but by in, in a, school, a school system in Kentucky, which I just dearly loved and still do. And so I made a commitment at that time in preparation for teaching that I would not teach things that I did not understand or that I didn't have a way of helping children understand. Now, that didn't mean I just would ever teach them. It meant or that I'd skip them in the curriculum, but it meant that if I got to something that I wasn't clear on and could not understand the hows and whys of, then, and even if I got to it in the middle of a lesson, I'd say, boys and girls, I'm just not as clear as I need to be on this. Let me work on this until tomorrow, and then I will be able to help you understand it better. And so with that kind of commitment, I just, I just, and having good reference tools to do that, there just weren't, well, I didn't find one that I really thought did it the way that, 
that I wanted it to do it, and now my current one needs some updating and improvements, so hopefully it'll come out in a year or so. I love that, the sense that we really need to demystify this and take it to its very grounding of the language and understanding the language can just help us converse better because I think a lot of children and adults even find math intimidating or they find it is not their favorite subject. And part of that is this language and understanding the words could help us make those connections. I travel uh, a good bit back and forth to Kentucky and I go to conferences some too, but Since I've been at BYU, I've also maintained a home in Kentucky and uh, relationships in Kentucky, and I travel back and forth a good bit. And so when I'm on the plane, if somebody sits down beside me and asks what I do, that is usually the end of any conversation. (laughs) After they first, uh, after, uh, the usual answer is I tell them what I do, and I tell them as gently as possible, not trying to sound like a, an egomaniac or something like that uh, over mathematics, but I tell them as gently as possible. But many of them say, I never did like mathematics. There will be a rare one who will say, I love mathematics and I used it in my field. Well, Marilyn Burns, a uh, uh, teacher and scholar, uh, did a survey Oh, quite a few years ago, several years ago. And I've seen the the figures replicated in other surveys and in other reports that approximately two-thirds of the American population either dislike mathematics, either di- uh, uh, dislike mathematics heavily. The word hate is sometimes used. Uh <laughs> That's a that's a strong da- word. Yes, a strong, strong word, word, and it's a dagger in the heart of a <laughs> mathematics educator. Uh, or, or they're uh, anxious about it. They're very anxious, or a combination of both. Those go together. But the real measure of whether a person really loves, understands, enjoys mathematics, and is whether people will keep on exploring mathematics even when they no longer are required to. Just like with literacy, a person who quits reading when he or she has learned to read as well as he or he needs to to pass the requisite tests and so forth, if that's a measure, we would not really call that person a, a, a highly literate person. We would call that person a person who's accomplished the skills and procedures. And so I've tried to do, I won't say everything within my power because I haven't always known what was within my power and I haven't always been faithful to what I know, I'm sure. But I try to do as much as I can to help people find the joy in understanding what they're doing and how they're going about thinking. And I don't think I've ever seen many children who were not excited to go to school as kindergartners. And you know, some way or the other, by the time lots of kids get in second grade, we have sufficiently whomped that joy out of them, and that's not necessary particularly in regard to mathematics, I think. I think that that is so true. And so let's let's look for ways that we can whomp the joy back. How's that? <laughs> we'll whomp it back in because there is great joy in learning and particularly uh-huh. in 
all areas of learning. So if we're a little bit uh, apprehensive about mathematics, hopefully our discussion today and maybe even beautiful resources like your math dictionary can help our students whomp some joy back in mm. into learning and particularly into this beautiful area of mathematics. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Eula Monroe, professor of mathematics education at BYU, talking about her mathematics dictionary, written to make math more approachable to children and adults. Now we finish up with a couple of teachers from Provost Elementary School in Utah who talk with Cole Wissinger, a member of the World's Awaiting Team, about how they use books every day in the classroom. We are doing something we call the Reading Zone, which gives students 30 minutes during each day to read books of their choice. And I help them a little bit with picking books on their level and books that would interest them. We also will have a a book club book in which we're working on a book that helps them learn some skills, literacy type skills. We're also doing uh, short selection readings about nonfiction topics, so we're using those to learn our science and our social studies curriculum. So this morning they were reading about uh, Pompeii and Herculaneum and the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. So we're able to use that to, to go through our social studies curriculum and our science curriculum, so we're basically reading all day long. Well, of course we have different topics of study, so there are some books related that way. But I also do a read aloud time every day where I read to the kids for about 20 minutes, which is one of our favorite times of the day. The other way that I use books a lot is a springboard to kids writing their own stories. Wow. And so what what kind of stories do they get to write? Okay, so we write some personal narratives. Like I read them a book called All About Sam, and it's about a two- or three-year-old who gets into some mischief because he doesn't understand what's what's happening. And so we each write a little story about a time that we got in trouble or we did something when we were younger that we didn't know better about. For example, like knocking down a bee's nest or something like that. But the kids really can think of great ideas when it's about themselves. And, and then you make that connection back to the books. So they, they learned a thing in the book and then they apply it in a in a different thing, in this case, writing. Exactly. And then we also, you know, once the kids have written it, I have moms who will help type their story. So I help edit with them. The moms type the story. The kids illustrate it. And then we publish it in class where the kids read it to their peers. We give them compliments on their work. And it goes in our classroom library. So kids can check it out and read it during silent reading time. I help them a little bit with picking books on their level and books that would interest them, but they're doing that for quite a long time each day, and they're they're really into the books that they're reading, and then I come around and talk to them about their books and ask them about their books. So how do you go through that process of finding what a good book would be for a specific kid as opposed to a different kid? That's a good question. You know, it's so different for each each student. I try to get involved with my students and find out what they're interested in and what type of books, genres of books, get them going and reading. And I always ask the students whether they're, they can actually get lost in that book and be interested enough that they don't want to put it down. Okay, so if I'm choosing a chapter book, I ask other teachers kind of what they've read and if the kids liked it, um, if it was interesting to them. So, of course, I've taught 
for about 24 years now, so I have my list that I repeat almost every year. I read those. If I'm introducing books for the kids just to enjoy during silent reading time, I really like to introduce books that have humor, like Ed Marshall books. Um, And he writes George and Martha. He writes all of the Fox books. And the kids find those really funny and entertaining, and they will read them over and over. So I want something high interest, something they can, most of my kids can read on their level independently, and humorous characters. Uh, Anything else that you're thinking of, just about books or about literacy, about kids? Just that, just that I think um, I'm a sixth grade teacher, so I get to see kind of the results of of six years worth of work from kindergarten to sixth grade and the kids who are doing the best are the ones who who have gotten past the stage of having been made to read but are are into the stage of loving to read. Two teachers from Provost Elementary sharing how they use books every day in the classroom. Thanks for listening to Worlds Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app, and at byuradio.org.